Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz, the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. I'm Dallas Taylor. What scares you? What makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up? There are plenty of haunting sounds out there, but perhaps the most strange, the most alien, and the most mysterious one comes from an instrument you may never have heard of, the theremin. Sound familiar? If so, it's probably because it's commonly tied to old sci-fi and horror films from the 1950s and 60s, such as The Day the Earth Stood Still. But there's more to the theremin than just eerie sounds. Its story actually starts and ends with a mystery, and there's a whole lot in between. The most intriguing part of the theremin is that you play it without ever touching it. Take that in for a moment. It's like playing a ghost instrument. Imagine your eyes are closed and you're hearing this sound that's maybe like a voice or a violin. And you're in the same room and you're hearing that sound. When you open your eyes, you will see somebody moving around who is actually not touching anything and yet is controlling this sound by where their hands are. So you watch this person moving the one hand and the other hand. You're looking at something that is sort of impossible and is magic. That's Rob Schwimmer. He's a renowned musician and thereminist. When you can just hear it, maybe you're thinking like of old sci-fi movies or older, you know, kind of scary movies, you know, where the person is cowering as the flying saucer comes down and some high kind of wavery, scary sound is happening. Sometimes that's a theremin that they would use in the movies. It's just, it's a freaky thing to see. It's a freaky thing to hear. And it's really fun to play. And its origin is almost as freaky. Around 1920, a Russian scientist named Leon Theremin stumbled across a bizarre confluence of electromagnetic waves that created sounds. He was working on a device to measure the density of gases. Instead of just having a normal meter, he decided to add a kind of whistling device. This whistling device would change the pitch depending on the density of the gas. And when he moved his hands around the device, he noticed a shift in pitch and volume. Eventually, he was able to manipulate it into a melody. It caught on and became a sensation across Russia, Europe, and eventually the United States. Oh, and he was also allegedly a KGB spy. But more on that later. He was not looking to do this when he came across the phenomenon of being able to hear something that was influenced by his physical position. He was doing another experiment. Now, I think most inventors, when they would come across such a thing, would discard it as an unwanted byproduct of what they were trying to do. With him, 
the light bulb went on over his head and he realized, I, this is not what I'm looking for, but I have something here. And that to me is the genius moment, is that he actually recognized that moment is there's something here. And that something wasn't anything tangible. You actually don't touch anything when you're playing the theremin. You just move your hands in the air. Now, when you look at that, that looks really weird, and you're going, well, how is that possible? This person isn't touching anything. The basic design is a thin rectangular box with one rod sticking straight up. That controls the pitch. And there's a horseshoe-shaped rod attached to the left side. That controls the volume. There are some knobs that adjust the overall pitch, but the basic design has remained the same since its invention. There are two electromagnetic fields, one around each side that you cannot see, of course. And your right hand, when it enters the electromagnetic field, that changes the pitch that you hear. The left hand controls the volume, which is kind of weird because it gets louder as you lift up. We're kind of used to gas pedals, volume pedals. We typically think more is down, downward motion, gas pedal. Uh, But in this case, it gets louder when you lift up. So it's a little strange to get used to at first. That's putting it mildly. Learning to play the theremin takes a lot of practice and a good ear. Albert Glinsky, an American composer and author, wrote the book on Leon Theremin's life and career. Here, he explains the basics of the instrument. So you have this basic siren sound like this. And we want to then chop that up into individual parts using the volume antenna so that we can create individual notes like this. That kind of idea. Theremins have sounded different over the years, and actually, from theremin to theremin, they sound they sound different. They feel different. But what it is is really that they actually have different sounds and different characters for each of them, and some of them are good for, oh, you know, you know how a guitar player will have a bunch of guitars, and he goes, oh, that, this guitar isn't right for this song. Well, theremins is kind of the same way. Why? It's magic. I don't know. Rob actually had the opportunity to play one of Leon Theremin's last known instruments before he, well, disappeared. It's called the November Theremin. For me, when I first turned the thing on, when I I said it was kind of a masculine sound, used to my theremins at home, they were a little more gentle. I turned this on, it's like playing a rhinoceros. You know, so I mean, it's like taming the wild beast. The story of the theremin doesn't stop with its inventor. In fact, it saw a resurgence in popularity around the mid-20th century. This was mainly due to the help of film, most notably Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound in 1945. It was a big year for theremin because it was... It wasn't the very first movie that appeared in, but it was the first big movie that Theremin played a big part in the soundtrack, which also won the Academy Award for Best Soundtrack that year. And Theremin was a huge part of that. That kind of brought it to everybody's attention. Right around the same time... It was used in another movie called Lost Weekend. The most startling novel of the decade. Brought to the screen with uncompromising frankness. Pulling no punches. 
knowing full well the storm it would cause. So two big movies right around 1945-46 that brought it to Hollywood. The artist behind these early theremin sounds was a man by the name of Dr. Samuel J. Hoffman. Pretty much any early Hollywood movie with a theremin, there was a good chance it was him. He had this fast kind of psychotic vibrato that he used in everything, which is part of why the theremin got to be known as the scary instrument or the uh, sci-fi instrument is just because of the way his vibrato was. That's just the way he played. And it was just perfect for scary, psychotic stuff. Immediately, that became the go-to for ensuing sci-fi movies in various states of cheesiness or whatever. None of them were as, none of them were as good as uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. But somewhere during this period, the theremin changed course and worked its way into popular music. Songs you may know, but may not recognize the instrument in. There were a couple of bands that started using it. There was one called Lothar and the Hand People. Then uh, Jimmy Page used it in a whole lot of love during that, you know, kind of psychedelic part. Now, there are a lot of players that used it strictly as kind of an effects thing rather than melodic playing. So there's kind of two schools of that. Jimmy Page was never a melodic player of the theremin. He just kind of used it as a, as a very cool, you know, sound effect. So, from a lab in Russia to rock legends, the theremin has seen a wide spectrum of experimentation. Over time, people started hearing Clara Rockmore. She had a record of her playing classic stuff, which was just spectacular. People started hearing it, it came back out on CD, and people started going, oh, you, you can actually use it. It doesn't have to be scary, it doesn't have to be psychotic, it could also be a beautiful thing. People started getting into the, you know, the idea of playing it melodically. They're popping up in all sorts of bands for all sorts of reasons. They're everywhere. I mean, you know, they're not like, you know, electric guitars yet, but there's a lot of them out there, a whole lot of them, doing all sorts of music, like everything, everything. Rob has played the theremin with a number of well-known musicians, including Stevie Wonder, Willie Nelson, the Boston Pops, Queen Latifah, Josh Groban, Bela Fleck, and even went on tour with Simon and Garfunkel in 2004. That part in the middle of the boxer, there's an instrumental that goes da 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 So they let me play it on theremin, and it was a fantastic honor and a lot of fun to do it in such a setting. I think theremins are really 
popular at this point because there is nothing that really replaces an amazing magic trick. When you can look at something and go, how is that happening? How is this possible? And still to this day, people react in that way when they get that visual of actually seeing somebody play it. There's nothing like it. The theremin has left its mark throughout pop culture, but its impact actually reaches far beyond what you might think. How did this strange instrument inspire electronic music as we know it today? And what secrets did its creator hide? We'll get to that in a minute. The theremin's chilling sound is synonymous with classic sci-fi and horror films, and it even found its way into rock music. But its story didn't stop there. It found new popularity around the 1950s, thanks to one particularly curious prodigy named Bob Moog. The inventor of the Moog synthesizer was also an early enthusiast and manufacturer of the theremin. And even to this day, Moog Music is the largest producer of theremins. Early on, Bob Moog was obsessed with this weird instrument. He was also really fascinated by the man behind its creation. My name is Michelle Moog Kusa. I am the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation here in Asheville, North Carolina. Michelle is one of Bob's daughters and heads up the foundation to carry on the legacy of her father and his instruments. He was introduced to electronics by his father, my grandfather, who was an electrical engineer himself. And they started off just making small hobbyist projects like three-note organs and Geiger counters, and they were ham radio operators together. So they were definitely two geeks in a pod, if you will, down in the basement of their house. That really sparked my father's love of discovery through electronics. And he did do a lot of reading at a very early age. And he came upon a article that introduced how a theremin is made and he thought he would take it on. And that basically began a lifelong love affair with that instrument. He really was very taken with the elegance of the design and the expressivity of the instrument. That was about the time that he was 15 years old. Bob Moog was brilliant. Even in his teens, he became so proficient at making theremins that he made one for a science fair at his high school. At 19, he wrote an article for radio and television news magazine, an electronic hobbyist publication. That article was so popular that people began writing him saying, I I would like to build my own theremin based on your article, but I can't find the parts. And he then launched his company, R.A. Moog Co., with his father to provide both theremins and theremin parts. That was in 1954 when Bob was a freshman in college. It was very much a small home-run operation. He had no idea how much it would grow in popularity. The way it would work is that my father would build the circuitry and wind the copper coils. At that time, of course, everything was analog parts, and there were very large copper coils that needed to be wound very precisely and very tightly for the instrument to work correctly, and my father had quite a knack for that and for building the circuitry itself. My grandfather was an accomplished woodworker, so he would build all the cabinetry. 
So the two of them had a nice partnership. Bob and his father continued to build these handmade theremins throughout his time in college. When he attended grad school at Cornell, he and his wife moved the operation to Ithaca, New York. There was a pivoting point in 1961 because my mother um, became pregnant with my eldest sister, Laura. And she said to my father, what are we going to do for money now because I'm going to have to stop working? My father said, well, you know, I've been wanting to write this article about how to build a new transistorized theremin. So he did. And with it, he changed the course of the theremin and its impact on modern electronic sound. He wrote an article on how to build your own theremin with transistors. That, again, kind of relaunched his business because he wound up selling theremin kits to build something called a Melodia theremin. And he sold a 1,000 of those kits for $50 a piece within about a year's time. His exact words are, you know, that was a huge cachet of wealth for a graduate student at that time, which it was. I mean, $50,000 then would have probably been like a quarter million dollars now. And I remember my mom telling me that at that time when she was quite pregnant, she was putting together theremin kits on the kitchen table. Bob Moog's fascination with the theremin was deeper than just its design. He had a great appreciation for its creator. He felt a really deep connection to Leon Theremin as well, his entire life. And he talks about him. He refers to him as his virtual mentor. He really felt that he had Theremin's guiding hand almost his entire career. And a lot of his ethic, both the visual ethic of his instruments and the design ethic of his circuitry can be traced back to Leon Theremin's ethic. Moog met his idol a few times. This is something Michelle says were the highlights of his life. Of course, Bob Moog went on to eventually create the Moog synthesizer, expanding the realm of electronic music. It exploded in the infamous Summer of Love, 1967. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear It began being incorporated into pop music. And that's when we see the birds, the doors, the Beatles using it. That all came out of one of my father's reps, Paul Beaver and Bernie Krause, bringing the Moog Modular to the Monterey Pop Festival. And after that is when all of the bands started integrating it. He was constantly seeking the feedback of these musicians, especially, as you can imagine, in those early years, there was still a lot under evolution. This is a very evolutionary stage, and he was listening to what the musicians needed, and he was creating it for them. The needs of the musicians was very much his creative beacon. A similar dedication to the craftsmanship he admired in his idol, Leon Theremin. Not a musician, but still an artist. People would ask him if he was a musician, and he would say, no, I'm a toolmaker. I make tools for musicians. That was really his calling. He did have a very high standard for his work. That, combined with the growing needs of musicians as the instrument and technology grew, really propelled him on this path where he was constantly trying to think of new ways to put expanded sonic expression into the hands of musicians 
in the most accessible way. While the Moog synthesizer took off, Bob never forgot his original passion and fascination with the theremin. He started Big Briar Incorporated and refocused his energy on making theremins again. He developed a small theremin called the Etherwave, which went on to sell more than 10,000 units. This prompted yet another resurgence of the instrument, thanks in large part to the internet. People have a lot more exposure to how the theremin is being used, and they have been inspired by it. And the number of thereminists has grown quite a bit, and so have the offerings of different kinds of theremins made by Big Briar, and now by Moog Music, but also by other companies all around the world. Bob Moog was also in the record business. In the late 70s, he and his wife produced an album featuring Clara Rockmore. She was a child prodigy on the violin. But when she injured her wrist at the age of four, she turned her talents to the theremin. She really had an astounding technique. And she devoted her life to the theremin and played it her entire life. And that's one more step in my father trying to gain a wider appreciation for this instrument. He believed so deeply in its importance that he passionately promoted it in one way or another almost his entire adult life. Moak had enormous respect for Rockmore, who had a deep connection with Leon Theremin herself. She was even featured in the documentary Theremin, an electronic odyssey directed by filmmaker Stephen M. Martin. He told me that when they went to film Clara for the documentary and she was playing and, and Steve said, I looked over at your father and his jaw had dropped to the floor. And when she finished playing, he just looked at me and said, you know what she was just playing? That was technically impossible. So he really felt like she was able to achieve things on that instrument that nobody else could. From a lab in Russia, to Hollywood movies, to all sorts of musical genres, this instrument continues to inspire intrigue. But maybe the most fascinating story comes from its own creator. Regarding uh, the, the disappearance of theremin from the New York area in 1928, there have been two theories. The one that he was kidnapped by the KGB to work for them because he was an electronic genius. The other was that he was a Russian operative the whole time doing, what, industrial espionage or whatever, and that he was called back. Um, I cannot definitively tell you what happened, but I can tell you that he did wind up working for the KGB and making all sorts of electronic inventions for them. The theremin's mysterious sound is a reflection of its story. It's an instrument so strange that it astounds people nearly a hundred years after its creation. But at the same time, it can be hauntingly beautiful. It's like magic. It's just magic and everybody loves a good magic trick. You look at this history of Leon Theremin, the spy, 
and you know all the crazy things that happened to him. You look at the instrument that's played without being touched. You look at the movies. It's been in like all these crazy movies as an iconic sound. You look at that. It's being used everywhere now, and people are still drawn to that singular magical trick. And when it's combined with really cool music, it's a it's just a winning combination. You know, it's just nothing like it. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design studio for television, film, and games. Learn more at defactosound.com. This episode was written and produced by Colby Hartberg and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was edited, sound designed, and mixed by Colin Devarney. Thanks to our guests Rob Schwimmer, Albert Glinsky, courtesy of Moog Music, and Michelle Moog Kusa of the Bob Moog Foundation, and soon to be Moogseum in Asheville, North Carolina. The music in this episode is from our friends at Musicbed, and now you can also use their music. For the first time ever, they now have membership plans. Check it out and sign up at music.20k.org. A special thanks goes out to Delos Music for letting us use Clara Rockmore's hauntingly beautiful recordings. Her album, The Art of the Theremin, is available from Delos at delosmusic.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and 20k.org. And don't ever hesitate to drop us a line anytime at hi at 20k.org. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>